You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Jesper Sorensen, who is Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford GSB. Also the author of this book right here, Making Great Strategy, Arguing for Organizational Advantage. So Jesper, you've been teaching strategy for many years, and and you've made this strong case in the book that strategy is essentially built on argumentation. It's built on logic. It's built on scientific discovery. And, you know, this goes contrary to what I think a lot of people think, particularly in the corporate world, who think that there's an element of intuition, there's an element of gut, there's making decisions in the fog of war where argumentation is, you know, going to hold you back. But you argue that in finance, we tend to think very rigorously And then why would we just move on over to strategy and just drop all that rigor and drop all that analysis and argumentation and then just let things go? Why, first of all, why do people think that? Why is it that strategy is the one area in business where we think we can abandon rigorous argumentation? And then why is that fundamentally misguided? Yeah, that's a great question. I think why do people think that? I guess would be that actually I do think that all great strategies share an underlying logic and it's a, it has to be a coherent logic. And so if you look at what we argue in the book is you look retrospectively at companies that were sustainably successful, you can figure out what the underlying logic was that drove that success. And when we go in and we teach a case in a, in an MBA classroom or an executive classroom, that's what we're doing. We're like unpacking like the history to figure out what was the logic that led to that, but it's logic, right? It's not math. And so like your question was, is interesting, right? Because that distinction between finance and and strategy, right? I think we're, we're much more comfortable with thinking logically when we think in terms of math and we think about numbers because we're trained starting in first grade or wherever it is to be disciplined. But our kind of mathematical conventions are, are actually just encodings of, of logic, of a particular kind of logic. But of course, strategy decisions can't be formulaic, right? In the mathematical sense, they can't be reduced to a spreadsheet. And so therefore we kind of think, well, okay, then it's just, (laughs) just go with your gut. And now when I say that, I don't want people to think that, and I don't think my colleague Glenn Carroll, my co-author Glenn would say this either. Like we certainly don't think that gut is unimportant in strategy, right? Like it's critically important because One of the things that's really hard about strategy is that strategy is about the future and it's about an uncertain future and you don't know what that future is going to look like. And so part of what you're doing when you're formulating a plan for how your organization is going to be successful in five years is you're trying to have a feel or a gut for what that world is going to look like. And so I think the reason we have fallen in love with this idea of strategy is, of course, then when we lionize strategic leaders. When we think about who are the great visionary strategic leaders, the stories we tell is about how they had a gut instinct or a vision um, for what it would take to win in a particular market. So we tell the stories of Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or, or wherever else it is, Michael Dell, you know. But I think what we lose sight of is that actually behind the scenes, they're also doing, right, either implicitly or explicitly a lot of work to make sure does it really make sense? Like, what would it take to make this make sense? And what has to be true? And that's really, I think, where they're, again, implicitly or explicitly, probably mostly implicitly, doing rigorous logical thinking, right? What is required to make this conclusion hold, right? And that's what logic is, right? What is required to make this conclusion hold? And that's really what we emphasize in the book. I've been teaching uh, the core strategy class for about 15 years. And also been teaching the, the core um, kind of data and decisions class. And I think people recognize that there's a difference. So in the, in the data and decisions class, we learn about hypothesis testing and we'll often hold up or require a p-value below 5% before you're willing to accept that something might be true. And, you know, you're not going to release a vaccine out into the general public until you're absolutely convinced. But in strategy, if you start operating with that level of required proof, you're never going to do anything. And so I think that's why 
people think that, okay, if I don't have proof, but I still have to make a decision, what else do I have other than some kind of assumption about the world? And I think what you're saying is that by making those assumptions explicit, by bringing them to the surface so that you can examine them and say, well, okay, first of all, what is it that has to be true? And then furthermore, I think what that really does is is it highlights your kind of information acquisition strategy, right? And in finance, we talk about real options and real options are really about how do you get the information you need to know whether or not you should continue or abandon whatever trajectory you're on. Yeah, I mean, that contrast with statistics, right, or data decisions is interesting too. What it brought to mind for me was one of my former colleagues here and a great organizational theorist, Jim March, right, who, who passed away just a couple of years ago. Uh, he has a lot of great papers. One of his papers is, the title is Learning from Samples of One or Fewer. Yeah. And that's actually, right, the challenge for you. If you're a leader of a organization, right, you have a sample of one, right? That's it's your organization, right? It's your organization's performance history or expected performance history. And so it's great for us business school professors to go and tell you, you need a sample. If you get a sufficiently large sample, you follow the law of large numbers that it'll have this normal distribution and then you can have a p-value and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I've got one data point, essentially. I have one performance performance record. And how do I know how much of that is luck and how much of that is stuff that I did? And that's a real, that's just a fundamental inference problem for a leader, right? Like how much of it is about stuff that I intentionally did and how much of it is about luck. And of course, we all know the kind of the tendencies that we will have as humans in that situation. So if we were the, the mask manufacturer in the past 18 months or however long we've been in this pandemic, you say, I made an enormous amount of money, right? And that means I had a great strategy, right? Because <laughs> I made a lot of money. And of course, if I was selling, if I was running a hotel chain during this time, you'd be like, oh, it wasn't my strategy that was the problem. It was that pandemic. You blame bad luck. So we, we're willing to think about luck when things go badly, but when things go well, then it's all about our strategy. And of course, if we're honest with ourselves as leaders, we would just recognize, oh, okay, like it's actually hard to know. And that's where, again, I think both what Glenn and I are arguing in the book is, right, is essentially then how do you then, in the absence of being able to go out and do what your data and decisions professor would do, would be to, you know, collect a representative sample of organizations like yours living in alternative worlds or alternative histories or whatever else it is, how do you construct a process for making sense of that? And I think that's essentially what, you know, what we would call you build a model. Right. Like you build a model of what you think went on. And I think actually, once you say that, then you say, okay, my model is a simplification of the real world. We bear it, we boil it down to a set of essentials. And then we say, okay, how do we assess whether a, a model is a good model? One is we can take it to the data, but again, we only have one data point. So we, all we know is it has to be consistent with that data. So you have one equation with multiple variables. There's going to be multiple different solutions. So the other way we have to think about it is, well, what other criteria do we have? And actually one of them is how internally consistent is it? Is it just does the, the, do the conclusions follow from the premises as stated, which is what logicians call validity. And so that's one criteria. And then you say, okay, that would seem to be necessary criteria for it to be a, a good candidate explanation. And then you say, okay, once we've narrowed it down to the ones that are valid or internally coherent, then you say, okay, which are the ones that I believe, which is essentially, which are the ones that make the assumptions that I believe? And that's where you might then say, okay, now I'm going to identify what the really critical assumptions are. And then I can go into a mode where I start to say, how would I know whether those assumptions are true? And then you can get into your data and decisions, right? Mode. And you can go and say, okay, well, I might go out and collect a sample of, of data points to see whether or not customers actually think this way or whether the costs actually decline in that way with increases in volume or whatever else it is. That's what's I think so interesting about strategy is there is this kind of, there is a real role for intuition and your feel for the situation and your kind of non-rational brain, so to speak, but then bringing that together with the discipline of the rational brain as well, because 
let's trust your gut, but verify, right? Like you really have to, you have to go back and say, okay, wait a second, because I know my gut wants things to be true that aren't always true, right? Well, it's kind of like the deist view of revelation, which was revelation was just, you learn something before, you know, that you had the empirical evidence to support it. (laughs) If the empirical evidence didn't support it, then you realize, oh, actually that wasn't really a revelation. (laughs) That was just an illusion. But but what, what I like about what you did is you separate this idea of validity from soundness, where the soundness cannot be determined until you have some kind of empirical support. That's sort of a question that will be answered by the data, by the facts, but the soundness can be evaluated independently of the data. Now, of course, the evaluation of soundness is, it goes, it's not just simple. A logician can't do it. In business context, you have to have theoretical understanding, right? So the more microeconomics, you, and the more marketing, and the more operations you know, and the more you, know, you understand the mechanics of the domain, the better you are at evaluating kind of the validity of these claims. And so by separating out the theoretical from the empirical, it basically, it dictates what your research agenda is. And so I'm wondering, I feel like when I teach strategy, I'm teaching logic more than I'm teaching strategy. And People like to make fun of us because the answer to every question is, it depends. And I think sometimes people just end there without realizing that the important work is done after those two words. It depends on, and then you articulate what you need to know in order to answer the question about what choice to make. Do you find yourself having to really educate? Even I find it even some of the most educated people who come into business school grapple with logic. And I actually launched at Berkeley a kind of orientation course in the summer before people start their program on just on logic, just understanding inference and, and all, all the just like basic stuff. Yeah, no, that I think that's exactly right. Actually, the history of the book, Making Great Strategy. So Glenn and I, we, several years ago here at Stanford, we introduced a course, there was a curriculum reform that introduced a course called Critical Analytical Thinking which part of the agenda for that course was we're going to try to teach basic principles of logic, right, to in, incoming first-year MBA students. And I think the, you know, the impetus for it was, I think exactly what you say, is that a lot of business discourse is, is almost more about who has the loudest voice, right, or who is the most persuasive. So it was about saying, where persuasive means has the best PowerPoint slides. And so we taught this course, which partly was about teaching deductive logic. There was also stuff on induction and and stuff like that. The course ultimately was not successful, which I think actually had less to do with the content than with other things. But the other venue in which we started teaching it was in executive education. And what was interesting is the executives in particular, right, like pretty high-level executives, they love it. I think because they're like, I just am constantly getting bombarded with these kinds of like having to make decisions and unpack really complicated things. And I don't know where to start in terms of thinking through the issues and how they relate to each other and and so on and so forth. And so that I think is really like just the discipline of trying to simplify things. And I think a lot of that's what we emphasize in the book is just, we talk about this process we call strategy mapping, which is really just about drawing boxes and arrows on a whiteboard. And It was was actually a very hard part of the book to write because it's much more easy to illustrate and practice, right? Like you get up on a whiteboard, you say, but in some sense, the history of the book is also tied into having taught strategy for years where that's what you would do during a case discussion is you would do that. You would help them see, oh, okay. So if this happened, then it led to this. Okay. But then what else would have to be true and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So I think that kind of discipline, I, the other point that you made, which I think was, is a really insightful point too, is. Strategy has always been thought of as a topic to be taught as being the course that is about integrating across all the different functional specialties, because it's about the leader's job. It's about the CEO's job. And so then the question was, where does that integration happen? And actually, I think where it happens is in in being able to develop intuitions about these assumptions that you're making. Like, in other words, okay, so I have to assume Part of my argument is that the cost structure is going to change like this with volume. Okay. 
Why do I assume that? Well, it's because I know something about the manufacturing process and I know something about operations and I know something about cost economics and I know something. So that's where all those things come in. Like, the, okay, so that's what my cost curve is going to look like. But then something, there's going to be some discontinuity, right? Because of some limit in the production process or whatever else it is. And then you can say, okay, so either that's an obstacle or that's an opportunity or the thing that I like to, my students kind of make fun of me for this, right? Because I kind of like, my favorite kind of slogan that I came up with during the process of doing this was this idea of in the process of strategy formulation, really the mantra should be validity today, soundness tomorrow, which means I really like that. Yeah. Strategy formulation, right. Is about an uncertain future. You can't know the truth of all of your assumptions. And at least if you are certain of the truth of all your assumptions, then it's probably not a very exciting strategy because then there's no risk and therefore less reward. And, but I think that just to close off the multifunctional kind of aspect, right? Like that's part of what can give you more or less confidence in the truth value of, cause you want to make you ultimately you have to choose between the different strategic options. So they say, why do I feel more comfortable with this or more comfortable with that? Because I know something about how organizations work, right? And how markets work and so on. Well, it also kind of separates out what you can do in the conference room from what need to actually go out and into the field and to do. And I think that being able to do what we call sensitivity analysis or establish boundary conditions, and this is not something that's limited to strategy. This is something which any kind of scientific endeavor, any claim that you make has to come with boundary conditions. And if it doesn't come with boundary conditions, then you should be you know, immediately suspicious of, of the claim. So if someone says, I think this is better, or I think I should do this. And the reason why people often don't come with boundary conditions is precisely because they they're arguing for the conclusion as opposed to arguing for something that is at a higher level. My students will sometimes, oftentimes when I ask a question like, okay, what should they do? They'll say, I think we should do this for the following reasons. They say, no, 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 flip it around. Say, I think we should do the thing that achieves X and I believe it to be this. Is If you start with the conclusion, you fall in love with it. But if you start with the argument, then you're more willing, I think, to abandon the conclusion if you experience new information. Yeah, I think that's right. You have to, it's tricky, right? Because on the other hand, this is where the gut comes in. So your intuition supplies you with the conclusion that you think is true. And I think the other thing, and we make this point in the book, right? Like when you're trying to formalize an argument or figure out what the logic is, it's oftentimes much easier to start with the conclusion, right? And then work backwards. And so you, but the truth is you have to be doing it in both directions and you have to have strong beliefs kind of loosely held, like in the sense of you have to have, okay, this is my gut. Okay. Now let me see what I think. And then say, wait a second, am I given what I'm having to assume? Am I really willing to, am I still going to stick with the conclusion? And that's a different, you know, so going back and forth in that way, back to front and front to back. You know, what you described reminded me a lot of the kind of uh, PRFAQ process that Amazon uses whenever they're trying to make some new proposal. They have to say, okay, you know, imagine it's been completed. Now let's go back and, and see how did that happen? Did it, here's why it worked, et cetera. Yeah, no, and um, so Michael Cusimano and David Riaffi have a book probably 10 or 15 years ago called Strategy Rules. I'm not sure exactly what the title is. It was this book about Steve Jobs and... Bill Gates, and I forget, there was a third. I forget who the third is, and that's embarrassing. But one of their rules or one of their principles for strategy formulation is look forward, reason back. So imagine the future state. And so what I tell my students is, okay, like you have this venture you're trying to build. Try to imagine that I'm going to come to you 10 years from now and want to write a case about you. What's that case going to say? And more importantly, when I teach the case, what's the logic loop I'm going to put up on the board? And that at least gets them to okay, here's how I currently think what it, how it's going to work. Now, the strong belief loosely held idea is I'm a really strong believer in what my, my colleague uh, Bill Barnett talks a lot about is about strategy as a sense-making process too, which is also informed by Jim March's work, which is, okay, so like you have this initial intuition for what you think is going to happen. Then the next step is, okay, now reason back, come up with the logical argument for how you think that's going to happen. Then the next step is, okay, act, right? Do stuff. And then you're going to gather evidence. So sometimes the action is, okay, I'm going to run a small scale experiment to see whether this assumption is right or not. I'm going to put up a dummy website to see what customer demand really looks like before I build, right, the equipment. Or sometimes it's actually just, I got to build the fab and I got to go do it. And then that's going to happen. And then the key part is now learn, right? The last step is learn from 
your action. So take all that data and then we get back to data and decisions, but more generally like learn. And so then the question is, how do you learn from data? Okay. Part of it is about statistics, but it's about having a model again. So that's why that, that developing that model in that second stage is so important. And then you say, okay, well, wait a second. There's aspects of that model that are working. And then there are other aspects that are like, oh, wait a second. That wasn't what I expected. And like, okay, now you let your intuition right? Kick in again and say, okay, well, what would have to be different or how do I change it? And so obviously when you sit down today and tell me what the company is going to look like five years from now, I know you're wrong. Like that's not how you're going to get there, which doesn't mean that you don't have a good idea of what the destination is. And of course, if you do that cycle well enough and you're open enough to also being able to discard your model and abandon it, right? Then you could discover something even better. And this brings up that whole issue that I once had a student who on the, you know, the first day of core strategy in the MBA curriculum, the first day of the MBA experience, here I was telling him about how important strategy is. And he was like, strategy doesn't matter. It's all about pivoting. Well, it's not a great way to get the corner off to a start, right? But it's like, well, how do you pivot intelligently? Because we only tell stories about the pivot that succeeded. We don't tell stories about the pivots that failed. And yet probably most pivots fail and essentially, and again, I think it's about when do you abandon your model? When do you abandon your theory of success versus, and part of the one, when you do it is when you suddenly discover something that looks a lot better, right? Like it's, it's not, cause if you just abandon it, then what are you doing? Right. Then you're sh shutting down and that's an oftentimes a less attractive opportunity. You referenced kind of the illusion of explanatory depth, right? Sebastian had a podcast about this uh, recently where people think I believe this because wave magic wand, right? <laughs> You know, like if you ask somebody to explain how their toilet works, oh yeah, man, you just, you just push the lever and, and then what happens after that? Well, there's this thing that kind of does this kind of thing. And by forcing people to articulate, it helps them to understand, oh, okay, I get it. I don't actually know as much as I think I do. And then I need to really, you know, think seriously about this. But the thing that you're referencing, which is how do you decide what to do among multiple options and how do you decide when to change? You use this concept of consequential, right? If there's a whole bunch of different assumptions that you're making, which are the ones that, that are most consequential? And that'll, that'll sharpen your kind of research focus. I do a lot of work with startups and venture capitalists, and I find that there's differences, but there's a lot of similarities, whether you're dealing with established corporations or not. And I like to call the CEO, the chief experiment officer. Usually I say, well, each round of funding is about validating a set of questions, but you're not validating every possible question. You have to really drill into, well, you know, what are the key assumptions that, that what are the most consequential to use your language, right? It's really about honing a research capability so that, you know, if this happens, that's when I pivot, but if that happens, I'm not going to pivot. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So consequential assumption, the way we think about it is it's a combination of two factors, right? So one is it's an assumption in the kind of the structure of the argument where if that assumption at the extreme, right, if that assumption fails, the whole argument fails. So you could almost think about it as I, the imagery in my mind is oftentimes of a network, right? Like a network graph. And if there's one node that everything flows through and that node fails, then you've got to, now obviously there's a continuum, right? And, and there are others that are perfectly redundant and it could be any number of ways. So and like, of course you have to factor in kind of the, the scale of impact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other dimension of consequentiality is your level of uncertainty about it, right? So like my, part of my assumption is that there will be roads in the Silicon Valley tomorrow to drive on. It has a very low degree of uncertainty, but will there be charging stations, right? At a sufficient density within 10 years in the Bay area like that. And that's where you get into scenario planning and you think about those things. But so if, if something is highly uncertainly and highly critical in the structure of the argument, then it's highly consequential. And so those are the ones you want to be thinking about. And in some sense, I think they're probably easy to identify in the sense that those are the things that you wake up in the middle of the night working about, but I think you'll have a better sense of them because you, your gut could be leading you wrong. So you really want to be thinking about, wait a second. Now, if we weren't able to do it this way, could we have some other way of doing it? Yes, probably. So then it's not so consequential, right? But there's also like, here's the point of failure. If we don't solve this, then we're in trouble. And that's the one you pay attention to. And then if that fails, then you pivot. And yeah, I think that's really an important part of it. The point you made about explanatory depth, I think like a lot of what we have emphasized in our conversation so far is mostly like what's going on inside of your own head as a strategic leader. A lot of strategy is also about persuasion and about getting a team aligned. And I, we actually argue in the book that this kind of logical approach 
is helpful there too. And there's actually some work in psychology that suggests that if you want to persuade somebody, it's better to get them to listen to and to engage in the process of articulating logical arguments, as opposed to saying, you know, should we do A or B? And then they just make up a magic wand thing, but actually having them walk through the mechanism of, to your example, how the toilet works, right? Then says, okay, then now can we all agree that this is what we have to focus on fixing, right? As a team. And I think that becomes so important for strategic execution, right? Because now everybody understands if all we talk about is what the goal is and we're going to win by being low cost. Okay. But low cost, how, right? Like, are we, is that a scale play? Is that a low labor cost play? Like, how are we doing those kinds of things? And that is where you get misalignment across all different parts of the organizations. And certainly this is less of an issue in startups because they're so tightly bound to each other. They're small, but once you get into the large corporate settings, right? Like you need people to have the same logic in their heads. The way you can get them to have the same logic in their heads is to talk about the logic and to be explicit about this is how we think this works, what the steps are. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you reference Hugo Mercier and, and his work on kind of conversation and how important it is. And you also talk about, say, constructive confrontation like they had at Intel or disagree and commit when you see it at Amazon and so forth. But I'm wondering in, in your teaching and you teach MBAs and executives, if you've encountered any kind of, you know, difficulties with this, because when I've worked with different levels of MBA students, I've, you know, I've encountered frequently a situation where if you have a group of four that's responsible for doing a case write-up, I've found sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, okay, you do write-up one, I'll do write-up two, the other person does write-up three. And and then when I ask people like, why are you doing that? Is it because you can't figure out a time to meet? It's like, oh, no, no, we meet all the time for beer and stuff. It's just, we don't know how to resolve our disagreements, right? Somebody says, I think we should enter the French market. And it was, I think we should enter the German market. And then they're like, let's just agree to disagree. Because the only way that they know how to argue is to argue blue, as you call it. And they think that a disagreement is about a fundamental identity <laughs> differences. And so I remember when one student it dawned on them, oh, you mean like 99% of disagreements are just are, are empirical? Wow, that, that would make conversation so much easier. So do you find that people just don't know how to engage in constructive argumentation, that they've just, it's a technique, technical thing that, that somehow didn't get taught along the way? Is that something that you see? Yeah, I, I think that that might be right. I certainly have witnessed what, what you're describing, my observation with our MBA students who are, who are awesome, right? But, you know, these case discussions, they'll be like, they'll, you'll ask for different points of view on a particular question and, you know, one student will say A, right? Like we should do A, right? And then you say, okay, well, Betsy, what do you think we should do? And then she said, building on what John said, I think we should do B. Like, no, you're not building one white album. It's like you're disagreeing with him. So let's just leave out that part and say, just yeah. explain to me why you're disagreeing. And, and it's seen as a threat to collegiality, right? It's seen as a threat to I think that's right. I think that's right. And so this is what when we make the case for arguing more, we're not saying fight more. Like, in other words, arguments have ground rules, right? And so part of it is about saying, okay, you get to make any argument you want, conditional on it being a valid argument. And I do think that's where people get hung up. Like they just want to say, I don't like that conclusion. And then it just ends up being counterpunching. And instead you have to say, I think you want to try to build a culture in an organization or in a classroom where you say, okay, I'm going to grant you the respect to say that you have a reason, have a logically founded reason for reaching that conclusion that I disagree with. Tell me what that logic is first. And, and then you have to grant me the same courtesy, which is to say, I get to say, I have a logic for why I do it. And I think what happens so often is that one of the most powerful things is like this kind of self-filtering that happens is that once you then start to do the logic for why you think the thing that you said, you just think you realize Actually, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe I'm wrong because your own brain is fooling you. And then you're like, oh, you're right. Like in order for this to really be the right conclusion, you would have to also believe this. And I'm not actually even willing to believe that or something like that. Then you get to consensus much quicker, but it has to be a willingness to have these fights with the same ground rules, which is okay. Like you get to have whatever opinion you like, but you have to back it up with a logical argument and we'll fight later or we'll settle it later in terms of what the right assumptions are, 
right? And that's back to validity versus soundness, right? So what you have to do is you have to agree to not argue about whether or not those assumptions that the other person is making are true until they're done making their argument. I don't believe that there's going to be that density of charging stations. And then what happens in organizations is the fight turns into a forecasting game. But I have data that shows this and I have data that shows that. And it's again, like it's the future, like nobody knows, right? And so like, just let it go. Just let that person say, okay, if that were true, then what would be the consequences? Okay. And you would actually do so. Oh, okay. Now that becomes a really important assumption that we have to then actually sit down and think about. And I think what that does is it allows everybody to feel heard. And I think that's what's so important in these kinds of discussions inside of organizations, because I think so many people just feel like they don't, they have legitimate points of view and they don't get hurt. And this is particularly important in kind of boss subordinate relationships because the number of subordinates who think their boss is an idiot is quite high, right? And the boss is actually not, right? But the boss has one logic and the subordinate doesn't understand that logic and has a different logic. And it's not that either one of them is, it was like my colleague, Frank Flynn likes to say, you know. Very few people wake up in the morning deciding to be a jerk that day, right? Like it's more just like they have different perspectives and that's what leads to it. And so you have to try to unearth, let's grant the idea that everybody is actually approaching this in a reasonable way. And then we'll see where we at, what it is we actually disagree about. Yeah. And part of it, I think is a fear of battle testing one's arguments. If you're an engineer, you would want your bridge to be tested before you let the civilians out onto the road. But with respect to arguments, like we don't see all of our arguments as dress rehearsals. Let's get all the kinks out during dress rehearsal. And the only way to do that is to expose them to other people's insights. And I think that, you know, the leaders of organizations are often the ones that are most guilty of this. They're afraid. Uh, one of the things that I've seen in organizations I've been a part of is that they're afraid to give people a voice because they think that voice and vote necessarily go together. And if you give someone a voice, you're essentially handing them a veto power and you don't want to give them a veto power. So you just don't let them inject their opinion. But oftentimes, you know, so people will ask me about that. And, and I just think all of this is very different from the question of who has the authority, yeah. right? Like authority is a different thing that's rooted in the organizational structure to a large extent, right? Like in the end of the day, the CEO is going to make the call. And I think actually everybody in the organization grants the CEO that right to make that call. Whether or not they view it as a good call or not is a different thing. And it just seems like as a CEO, you would much rather have them disagree with the call that you made, but understand why you made the call. Partly because then they will still have some respect for you, but also partly because you now want that subordinate to go out and do the thing that you have decided to do. And you want them to understand what the logic is and not just think of it as just this crazy whim that the CEO had. And so I think you're exactly right. Like in some sense, the fear of losing the authority is what causes them to lose the authority or the effect of the authority or the effectiveness of the organizations. Now you walk through this kind of strategy formulation process. You have this wonderful scenario where, you know, someone is appointed chief strategy officer. <laughs> you know, they, they, they have like a gazillion, you know, ideas. And you walk through kind of the, the filtration process and the choosing process. And some I, I, I use in, in my lectures a similar thing, which is built on like sensors, processors, and actuators, right? So like idea generation, idea evaluation, and then idea execution. And it seems like what you're doing, it's very akin to what we call design thinking, right? Over at the D school, where you diverge and, and you converge. And it seems like this process could be redeployed outside of the strategy arena into pretty much product design or any kind of decision-making that a leader has to make. So could you talk a bit about this process? Because it, it sounds wonderful, but the flip side of this decision-maker is that, as you describe in the book, they know that each one of these ideas has, a, um, has an advocate. And if you want to keep your job, <laughs> you have to be sensitive to that. And we here at Berkeley, we have a course on power and politics, which is like the most popular class, because I think a lot of people understand that Realistically, if you go out into the world bearing these ideas and, and these approaches, you might not get very far in a lot of organizations because you might have to give an audience to bad ideas because it's a powerful person that's, that's advocating them. And how do you blend this sensitivity to the 
or organizational politics, if you're not in a position to define the, the organizational dynamics with this idea of a sensible, logical, argumentative process? Yeah, that's a good question. It makes me reflect on the fact, I mean, I think the that chapter in the book is in many ways, even though it starts with that example, right, which is about somebody coming in and being handed 36 strategic priorities from the board. And of course, if you have 36 priorities, you don't have priorities. And so like his dilemma is, as you say, it's a managing up dilemma. And in some sense, the process that we describe for the strategy formulation, which is about there's a divergence phase and there's a convergence phase. And we have a, really most of our advice is about that, the delicacy of the convergence phase, right? But really that's more written in some sense from the from the leader's perspective, thinking about the ideas that are coming from below. But I think there's a similar lesson, which is that I think there's a first step, especially if you're managing up, I think. If you have an organization where people are committed to the idea of whoever has the power calls the shots, no matter how they got the power, then you've got deeper issues. And I think what we're talking about is probably like, I think the first step would be to say, we actually, our ideal scenario is one in which we pursue strategies that are internally logically coherent. And so if we all agree with that as a normative statement, right? Like in other words, before we commit to something, we have to have thought through the logic of it and tested it to the extent that we can in terms of the logical rigor of it. I think if you get to there, then you say, okay, now look. And so I think this is what this person did, right? This, that example of the book is about, is a real example of somebody I met with once. And what he did was he basically got, he took all 36 and he basically said, okay, I can come up with the logical argument for each one of those. And then you go back, right? To the person who proposed it or for the people in charge. And, and like, if the logic is done well enough and is done sensitively enough, then they can start to see, oh yes, no, we would actually have to invest enormously in this capability that we don't have, and that would crowd out this other thing and so on and so forth. So in some sense, they self-filter again, right? They, they say, okay, you know what, once you force me to make this argument valid, like it just becomes, I can see that it's too unlikely to succeed, right? Like uh, the sound, the, the projected soundness, so to speak, is, is too low. Does that solve all the problems of power and politics and organizations? Of course not. But of course, it's an interesting thing about these courses on power and politics, which are very popular in every single business school. I think that there's a lot of really important lessons there, but they also have this kind of self-reinforcing kind of dynamic, right? If, if what everybody has learned is how to manage power and politics, then all we get is organizations where everybody focuses on managing power and politics. And I kind of think we have to be aware of power and politics, right? Like there are stakeholders for things. You have to understand what their interests are. You have to understand why they might resist things. Why, and, and these become part of your arguments, right? Marketing doesn't want to do this for whatever re, whatever their reason is. And we have to understand those reasons. That's part of what power in politics is and how do we make it interesting to them, right? Like politics is a positive thing when done well, right? Like, because it, it's about balancing different agendas and that's what organizations are, right? They're constellations of people with, with different goals and you're trying to get them all to march in the same direction. But I think... It's much more likely to succeed if there is a broader kind of understanding is, okay, whatever we're going to do, our minimum criterion is it has to make sense. And we have a standard for whether it makes sense, which is I can see the logic of it and I can see that logic being coherent. I think if a leader is trying to convert a organization from being one that's kind of driven by politics to one that might be more driven by policy, you might say, there's some things that they can do, right? When you go into a meeting with a bunch of constituents, right? Instead of starting the meeting by saying, okay, what do you want? You can say, okay, what are your ideas? Because the minute you start the agenda by saying, what do you want? Then you're just essentially saying that this is just going to be a bunch of log rolling as opposed to a strategy formulation meeting. Or I like to say that there are complaint driven organizations and idea driven organizations, and, and it's really in the eye of the beholder. So if you as a leader take a complainer and start treating them like an idea generator, then they'll start acting like an idea generator. And the reverse is true, true as well. And I think also like to your scenario of a leader going in, right. And trying to transform, I think so much is about getting people aligned on what is the problem we're trying to solve, right? So much of this dissolves into politics because people are not even necessarily ill-intentioned. Like they're just trying to solve, they think they're solving really important problems, but they're different problems. And we got to first, like, first, let's just step back and say, what, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Can we agree? 
And now let's talk about what the ideas are. Like before I would ask, well, what are your ideas? I would ask, what do you think the problem is and what it, we have to do? Because otherwise the ideas could take you in all different kinds of directions. And because then you can start to ask, okay, how is that idea related to this problem? Like in other words, if your conclusion is doing X will solve Y, okay, what's the logic of that, right? Like what's the mechanism? So you mentioned this dreaded strategy meeting. <laughs> talk about every organization is like, oh no, not the strategy meeting. It seems like the strategy meeting should be like the, the high point of your calendar, right? That's, that should be like the most exciting and interesting and enjoyable meeting that you're going to have all year long. And yet it's dreaded by all of the participants. What accounts for that? Why is it, why is it such a drag, right? What's the problem? You know, I think one reason in many organizations, the strategy strategic planning process or the strategy meeting is tightly tied to the budgeting process. There's no discussion of strategy. So I think that's one part of it because then that just leads naturally. Right. And the iron, I like to joke when I teach, right? Like the, the iron law of these kinds of budgeting processes is nobody ever comes, none of your subordinates ever come to you and ask for less. <laughs> right. Right. Because nobody ever comes up and says, you know what, actually we need, you need to cut my budget by 20% because I'm doing like, it's just so rare. And so of course, strategy is always about adding more. And like one of our former deans, he tried to separate the strategy from the budgeting process, at least temporarily, temporally. But one of the things that he would do in the strategy part of it, he would say, okay, if you're going to add stuff, what are you going to take away? Because it can't just be, we're just going to keep doing more because strategy is ultimately about resource allocation. And if those resources are scarce, then we have to think about that. This doesn't mean we have to cut necessarily, but we have to at least, you have to be willing to give the get, right? So I think that's one part of it, which I think really means stop thinking about strategy as something you only do once a year. You should always be talking about strategy. Like you should always be thinking about events that happen and things that work and that don't work in terms of the strategy. But in so many organizations, strategy is this thing that happens once a year. It happens in the C-suite, right? A consulting firm comes in and tells me what the strategy is. And then again, it gets printed out in these nice brochures or PowerPoint decks or whatever. And then everybody gets one in there and they keep on doing. And people say, you know, like, my job is not to do strategy. I'm just doing execution. But let's be clear. If you have any level of responsibility in organization, you're allocating resources. You're deciding should I let people work overtime today or this week? And that's a resource allocation decision, like even at that very level, low scale. And certainly people higher up in the organization, they should not be saying strategy is not my job because they're managing budgets of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, right? And so they're doing strategies so they should be constantly thinking. And again, that's where if the strategy is a model, like I have this model of how we succeed. And I think the really great organizations are able to do that, right? Like everybody kind of says, okay, this is how we tick. Like I get it. And therefore I understand that I should do this and not do that. And when I'm, well, now I understand what is something that needs to be discussed with a broader group and so on and so forth. But that's the same. And then I think budgeting becomes a different, there's a different aspect to budgeting and strategic planning, which is about what do we think something's going to look like five years from now? And what kinds of allocations do we need to make? But like, I think a different part of it than like, how many headcount do I need to execute on my current strategy, which is a different, I think just a different issue. But even though all of these meetings generally produce some kind of document, as you point out, it's still, they're muddy, right? Like it's hard to actually know what the strategy is if you read these things. And I think you said at some point that the problem with most strategic conversations is not you know, wishful thinking, but muddled thinking. And it's kind of surprising that you can't like, okay, we know that Amazon has defining principles and, and we know, it, I think it's easier to identify defining principles and cultural principles, but when it comes to strategy, it's hard to find companies that have fully articulated, transparent strategy that their employees can look to, that their shareholders can look to. And you reference uh, Elon Musk's tweet I guess it was a tweet back in like 20 well, it's, it's blog post, blog post, I think yeah. blog post. And, and it's like, Hey, why doesn't everybody do that? Right. Why doesn't everybody just lay out? Hey, here's what I'm doing. Is, is it because they're afraid to what, is it because they don't want people to see what they're doing or is it just, they don't really know what they're doing? I, it's a really good question. I don't know. Like, I mean, I've said it on so many presentations where you'll sit through this from some, from executives and companies where they'll give some presentation about their company. It's the most innocuous thing in the world. And it'll say, 
company name confidential at the bottom. And it's, I think one of the points we make in the book is like, there, certainly if you're a publicly held company, like there are analysts out there who spend their lives trying to understand what the logic of your success is. Like, why are you trying to keep it secret? Like it's being openly discussed. And I think people underestimate the costs of that kind of like confidentiality obsession around, we can't let people know what our strategy is. I'm sorry. Yes. If there's a new product release that's coming, I can understand like that's, but like your day-to-day -day strategy, right? Like, look, probably 50% of anybody who has an MBA in America right now has done, probably a hundred percent has done a case on the strategy of either Walmart or Southwest Airlines. I'm doing or, Walmart tonight in my class. <laughs> And it's a little bit like Toyota, right? Oh, yeah, to Toyota production system. They're like, come look, like Ford, General Motors, come look at how we run our facilities. Like, it's fine. Because we don't really think like you seeing it is not just like you doing a class on Walmart strategy doesn't mean that you're going to go beat Walmart. Like, it's just, it means that you can draw some lessons to do, to do other stuff. But I think that's the weird thing. It was like, we think, oh, we can't let anybody know. But what people lose sight of when they think that way is that means that everybody in your organization doesn't understand your strategy very well either. And then it means you have to compensate with authority and command and control and rules and regulations and all those other kinds of things. And I'm not at all convinced that trade-off is worth it. Like that kind of unnecessary secrecy. Like we kind of basically get how the logic of these companies works. So why not just tell everybody inside the organization and make sure that's what they all walk around with in their heads on a daily basis? So last question. In strategy, we, we're always talking about the benefits of commitment and the benefits of flexibility, depending on, you know, depending on the, the time of day. And the question I think we always get from students is, okay, um, why can't I just have both, right? Why can't I have flexibility and commitment. And at that point, we usually say, well, see what your spouse thinks about that or right, whatever. But I think you make a very important claim, which is, look, there are deep currents and there are the shallow waves. There are the deep arguments that are difficult to dispute, but then there's the kind of empirical data, which, you know, which changes and which forces us to revise our assumptions. Does, does making strategy into thinking about strategy as an argument, as a logical argument and forcing us to separate out the, the validity from the soundness. Does this kind of help us reconcile this constant tension between flexibility and, and commitment? Does it help us to understand the things that, what is the impact of new information versus? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's right. What I would say is I think it probably, I would tie it back to the conversation we had earlier about consequential assumptions, right? And it's about the things that you have to be committed to are the thing are the assumptions that are most critical in your argument, the ones that everything, and those are the things that you have to stick with. So Intel, for example, like a critical assumption of their strategy for many years was that there is value to be created and captured by having integrated design and manufacturing. And that was just, and, and. Everything about that assumption is built into that organization. It's built into their capital allocation plans. It's built into their organizational structure. It's built into their culture. It is deeply held. And of course, that's where, right? And so lots of things they could be flexible about, right? So that they could actually, that the flexibility was they could go from making memory chips to making microprocessors, right? And then discover this amazing new market, right, with the PC. They could then even navigate the decline to a large extent of the PC business eventually many years later by saying, oh, that integration is also valuable, right, in the server market, in the data center market, right? Now, it didn't serve them well in other segments, like it didn't serve them well in mobile. And what happened, of course, in the industry was that there was a deintegration of those two things. And you get fabless semiconductor manufacturers, and then you get fab or Taiwan semiconductor and Samsung and others. Right. And so, and that whole ecosystem builds up. And so what Pat Gelsinger, the new CEO, then of course faces when he comes in is this dilemma, like, am I going to be committed? Am I, and there was a lot of pressure coming from the outside. I think Elliott management or whoever it was saying, look, you should just spin off the fabs and you should just give up on that commitment. Right now that I think is right a much more difficult choice. And he made a different choice. And I think that was, neither one of them was good, but I can certainly, it was easy uh, rather, but 
I can certainly see the reasonableness and the, the logic of his bet, which is basically unwinding like all that history would have been really difficult. And so instead it's about saying, can we learn how to build, to run a, to run a foundry? And the jury's going to be out for a long time on that question. But I think there's a whole set of assumptions that go into making that work. But so I think if you had said there was zero value to that integration, right, of design and manufacturing, and that, that the days where that had added value was zero, then you would say, okay, maybe we should move on. That's where we stop our commitment, right? Now, of course, those are really hard calls to make. Those are enormously difficult calls to make. But so I guess that's how I would answer is right. Really focus on like the core of the strategy. I mean, the other good example of this was Steve Jobs, right? Like pivoting, right? Well, we don't understand that. I think what people don't appreciate enough about Steve Jobs coming back was that all the stuff that we attribute to his genius, like we have this image of him having come back and seen the iPhone revolution in 1999 and the app store ecosystem. And no, he was actually his first five or six or seven years were all about trying to save the Macintosh as a PC by gaining more market share. The reason they introduced iTunes originally was to make the Mac the digital hub of this or the hub of this digital revolution. And he kept iterating on that and he iterated and he added the iPod and that made it. But again, it was all Macintosh only because it was all about growing that. And then they introduced the store and the store was explosively popular much more popular than they had ever imagined. And that's when he then said, okay, hell froze over and I'm going to release stuff for the Windows platform. And that was what that was, him abandoning the strategy of using these kinds of the music and all that other stuff to save the Macintosh. And instead, he was going to build a whole new business around the iPod and the music business, right? That's pivoting, right, in a big scale, but that's about, it took six or seven years to give up on that original commitment because there was a logic to a closed PC platform that he wanted to make work. And he was still committed to that when he came in. And so I think, but again, it's about really understanding. I've tried now for seven years to get the logic of that argument to work and it just doesn't work. And so like, this is like a scientist sometimes just has to give up on their theories and that's the challenge. And that's why those are very difficult decisions to make. Yeah, I think that the most important lesson that our students have to take away is that building a strategy is not about laying down some inflexible plan that's going to last them for a couple decades or even maybe even a couple of years, but rather it's something that has baked into it, right? The capacity to learn and the capacity to respond to information when it comes in. But that only works if you know exactly what you should be sensitive to and what you should be looking for and what information is critical and what information is less, less relevant. Jesper, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This is a book called Making Great uh, Strategy, Arguing for Organizational Advantage. And I recommend that you check it out regardless of whether you are chief strategy officer or maybe just working in any old company. It'll help you to argue better, it'll help you to think more clearly, and it'll help you to um, build teams that, that are, I think, functioning in a better way. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.